This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, it's just Ron and me today. Uh, Goose is in New York putting together the NFL 100 interviews. So, Ronnie, uh, I know you're on a cell phone calling from Foxborough. Um, I want to take care of some old business while Goose is taking care of some new. And that's the last time we spoke. You said you were taking your family to the NCAA lacrosse semifinals. in. guess where? Foxborough. So what would you do? Stay there? <laughs> we did. We did. Just put up a tent in the parking lot. It was great. Uh, you know, it's a three-day uh, uh, lacrosse. is really a small sort of family. Everybody's kind of knows everybody, it seems like. And, uh, you know, you see a lot of old, I saw some of my old former players uh, that, that I coached back in the day. And I saw a few guys limping around, so I knew they used to be teammates of mine uh, at some point in time. And it was great. The whole weekend was great. The final was great. The Yale Duke game was terrific. Um, you know, it, uh, it was well played and, and, and hotly contested. It was, it was a good time. Yeah, how about those, Eli? I mean, Bula, Bula. I got to tell you, I, I think it's great that an Ivy League team and, and one just 25 minutes down the road from me won the national title. And also great, honestly, that the two academic institutions were in the final. Can you imagine? I mean, imagine this. Collegiate athletes who perform the rarest of feces days, they, they play sports. And, Ron, they actually go to class. Well, they certainly do. And great athletes on both sides who are also committed to the notion of student-athletes with the emphasis on both, not just one side or the other. It's, great. You know, it's really great to see. And uh, I think we all know, for the most part, they are students first, but uh, tremendous athletes uh, playing uh, uh, one of the fastest games on two legs. So it was yep. it was uh, really fun to see. Well, here at the Talk of Fame Network, of course, we go to class every week, catching up on the old and the new in the NFL. And today, we're going to sit down with former Rams quarterback Roman Gabriel, Giants head coach Pat Shermer, Jacksonville Hall of Fame voter Sam Kuvaris, who will give us his best Jaguars not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and ESPN.com's Rich Samini to weigh in on the national anthem controversy in the New York Jets. And, Ronnie, I know you once told me you couldn't wait to talk to Roman Gabriel. Want to tell us why? For sure. Uh, when I was a kid, I used to write to college of pro players and get their autographs or something from them, and uh, some replied, some didn't. Roman Gabriel, who was a two-time All-American at the time quarterback at NC State, uh, was one who did. He sent me a handwritten note that I still have in an old scrapbook. Uh, and, I, and I went and looked at it this morning, actually. And what he wrote was, football is a good game, so you stick with it and do your best. Uh, and you know, Clark, when you're 10 years old, and, it, and uh, you know, a two-time All-American takes a minute or two to write a kid, yep. you know, a note like that, a note of encouragement, uh, you don't forget it. And it's why, you know, over 50 years later, I still have to. Well, good news, Ronnie. He's coming up shortly. So stay where you are. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Ron, I see where former Bucks quarterback Josh Freeman gave up on his CFL career. <laughs> that didn't last very long. Uh, so how soon before you think we see his name show up on one of those spring football rosters? Maybe um, the Alliance of American Football League that's scheduled to play in 2019, you think? Well, you know, Steve Spurrier or Mike Marsh get the chance, they'll grab him in a minute. You know, uh, yeah. these guys uh, uh, never seem to stay away too long uh, from the game. I think there's some kind of a chance to play somewhere, somehow, for somebody, or uh, some kind of game. So uh, I, I would be surprised if he doesn't at least get the call. Now, yeah. maybe he's just burned out on the game. Who knows? But uh, Well, there's another quarterback, that uh, an ex-NFL quarterback, a lot of people in this country are interested in, Ron, and that, of course, is Johnny Manziel, who's also in Canada with the Hamilton Tiger Cats. And how do you like his chances of, let's say, A, 
surviving the season up there. Josh Freeman couldn't. B, starting this season for the Tiger Cats. I don't know how we know the CFL. And C, uh, using this experience to get back to the NFL. I mean, he has June Jones as his head coach. We all know about June Jones. So he's at least in the right place to run an offense that I would think, Ron, would be to his advantage. And that's a wide open sort of run and shoot. No, I agree with you about being in the right place at the right time. And, you know, it worked for Warren Moon and Doug Flutie. We both, uh, you know, revived themselves and became NFL players and in one case a Hall of Fame player because they used successes they had in the CFL. Uh, I think the question with Manziel uh, is will he be patient enough to give himself time to rebuild his reputation, you know, as a player and as a man, frankly, and and can he make it through the winter? And the fact that uh, Hamilton probably has a less impressive facility and fan interest than uh, TV High back in San Antonio when he was playing playing there, you know. So, yeah, uh, right. but I think if he looks at the game, as you point out, it's such a wide open game, increased passing, you know, fewer downs, wider field. I mean, all of it plays to his advantage, and he's with a coach who has a really fertile offensive mind. So, uh, if he's ever going to rekindle his career, I would say he's in the right place to do it. Well, you know something, he's he's expected to make his CFL debut this Friday. In preseason's game against Toronto, that's Mark Tressman's uh, Toronto Argonauts, the defending CFL champions. And uh, just a hunch, Ron, but I'm going to guess there are going to be a lot of NFL scouts and probably writers at that game. Oh, I think so. Look, uh, um, if I could find it somewhere on cable TV, I'll probably be watching it myself. Clark, how about you? Why would you? Yeah, I would. Oh, no, I'll be watching the Yankees. I'll be watching the Yankees, Ron. Oh, the second-place Yankees? Yeah, I can see why you would do that. Yeah, yeah for the time Yankees. being. Yeah. For the time yeah, they're being. interesting. Interesting. Uh, yeah. I have to look up to see the what? Red Sox, but that's all right. It's okay. Uh, you know. Beat your Red Sox. Too no shame in the second time place. They met. Really no shame in second place. No, <laughs> okay. On to another quarterback. Not the Red Sox. Another quarterback and a familiar topic, and that's Colin Kaepernick. Yeah, we haven't talked about him in, what, one week, two weeks, whatever, um, in this whole national anthem controversy. The league last week adopted a new policy that basically says players must stand for the anthem or else, and meaning or else, or their teams will be fined, um, and the teams can do whatever they want to the players themselves. Uh, otherwise, they can stay in the locker rooms until the anthem is played. And, Ron, I know you've written about it, but here's what I don't understand. Why the NFL didn't simply do what it did years ago and what Mike Tomlin tried to do last year in Pittsburgh and say, stay in the locker room until the anthem is over, period. That way, to me, it would have diffused what continues to be a divisive issue that's simply not going away. Right. Well, I, I think it's things. I think it's because they don't think things through uh, from any standpoint other than a, a short-term marketing standpoint, number one. And they don't listen to anybody uh, older than the age of uh, 25 unless he's a president who acts like he's 13. Um, and two bad ideas, by the way. Because uh, that would have been the logical solution, but you know, uh, I think their fear there was that people, some people, would say they capitulated to the players uh, mm-hmm. rather than stand up to the employees, you know, slap them around. Uh, uh, but to me, what they really should have said is, "We're not changing anything." Uh, most of all, the United States Constitution, which is what all the anthem singing and flag waving is all about, boys and girls. I mean, uh, to me. Uh, that would have taken some cojones, of course, and Amigo, 
No cojones on Park Avenue. Yeah, well, I saw where someone said that uh, there was a report out there that said stars are willing to sit out the season in support of Kaepernick and Eric Reed, who was another 49er who knelt. And I'll tell you what, Ron, um, I, I, I think there's a better chance of Bill Belichick inviting you and me to his house for the holidays. I mean, it ain't going to happen. <laughs> Players couldn't sit out three weeks in 1987 when there was a strike, uh, and they couldn't wait to jump the picket lines then, and they couldn't sit out preseason in 2011 when they got a CBA they really shouldn't have signed. So I guess I'll ask you, why are these unnamed stars reportedly going to sacrifice millions for Colin Kaepernick when they wouldn't sacrifice millions for themselves? And, and the answer to me is well, they're not. No, they're not. I mean, that's just, I mean, Parcells always says, don't go by what you say, go by what you see. And yep. Uh, yep. what I've seen for 46 years is guys crossing picket lines, you know, guys, uh, you know, acting against their own long-term self-interest, uh, frankly, and against the self-interest of their fellow players. Uh, the fact of the matter is there's maybe a handful of, of guys, of players, who if they sat out uh, would have an impact on the league that the league would have to respond to. Yeah. You know, if all the that's right. that's right. starting that's right. quarterbacks said, you know, we're not, we're not playing until Kaepernick gets a job. Yeah. He'd have a job yeah. in 48 hours. But that isn't right. going to happen. Yeah, that's right. And you know what makes this issue so intriguing, Ron? It's it's a three-headed monster. You've got the players here, the NFL over here, and the President of the United States weighing in with these tweets that simply fan the flames on both sides. So it ain't going away. No. No, it's not. Look, you got a guy like Congressman uh, uh, Peter King, and, and not that Peter King, by the way, thankfully, uh, but, you know, tweeting out and comparing the kneeling down uh, to protest uh, social injustice with giving the Nazi salute. I mean, what do you do with that? It would be laughable if it wasn't so dangerous. All rise. Here comes the judge. Well, I'll tell you this. When I hear that sound, I stand at attention because it means someone, in this case, me, is going to make a case for a former player or coach to be included in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And today, that player is cornerback Johnny Sample, whom Rick Gosselin wrote about this week on our website, talkoffamenetwork.com. Now, full disclosure, Ron, uh, I'm not a big Johnny Sample fan because in my eyes, he was a Benedict Arnold. He was a turncoat. I was a Baltimore Colts fan, and he was part of the 68 Jets team that won Super Bowl three, and I never forgot that. Plus, he had, to me, a big mouth and loved to talk trash. But while I didn't like him, I respected him because he was one heck of a cornerback. I mean, he started in three NFL championship games, and he won all three, including two with Baltimore, and that one that I'd like to forget with the Jets. And he intercepted two passes in those games with one return for a touchdown, which, of course, sounds about right for Johnny Sample because he intercepted 41 passes in his career and returned six for touchdowns. But... Johnny Sample is more than a good cornerback. He was an outspoken one, too, uh, complaining about racism in the game and the pay uh, disparity between white and black players. And, and he could be a volatile one, too, with the 1969 exhibition game between the Jets and the College All-Stars, the evidence in the days when they played that game. He headbutted Hall of Fame quarterback Otto Graham. Imagine that. Otto Graham, who was coaching the All-Stars. And, Ron, you know, I think you probably ran into Otto Graham, one of the nicest guys going. But... He yep. headbutted him during the game and later said it was a result of a long, simmering feud. Sample suffered a back injury in the game, and remarkably, he never played again. After the, He never played. He later wrote a book called Confessions of a Dirty Ball Player, which didn't win him any popularity contest and may explain why he was never voted to a Pro Bowl or All-Pro team. But the guy had elite football skills. He recovered 14 fumbles, led the league in punt returns one season, averaged 26 yards per return on kickoffs that same year. 
So he was a very good cornerback, and he was sometimes a great one. At the very least, Ron, I think I'd like to see his case argued. I think so would Goose. But as a member of the senior committee, Ron, it's up to you and Goose to resuscitate that candidacy. Yeah, and that would be pretty tough to, to you know, with, with the types of players that are in there, you know, the Ken Andersons of the world and, and uh, uh, so many other, uh, you know, really great players that we scratch our heads uh, yeah. and say, how they're not in there. It would be hard to bring them out, but it would be an interesting conversation, that's for sure. And, uh, uh, you know, to me, one of the interesting things about Johnny Taylor was he was a guy who was, as you said, very mercurial, uh, you know, I was going to say borderline dirty, but he wasn't actually even across the border. And then later in life, he becomes a line judge in tennis. Yeah. What could be more opposite than that? In, out, in, out. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. And, 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 and a pretty good tennis player. As I yeah, I, 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 the U.S. Open, things like that. So. Uh, I, I love Johnny Semperon, not as a tennis player, but as a ball player. But when he's with the Baltimore Colts, not the New York Jets. I'll tell you what else I love. Well, I love our sponsors. The Colts, but they kick them out. They kick them <laughs> yeah, out. that's right. Well, that's true. Um, I love our sponsors too, Ron. You're going to hear from them now because this is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Our first guest is one of my favorite reads and one of my favorite colleagues. That's ESPN.com's Rich Samini, who covers the New York Jets so well and who's been covering them so long that he's an expert on all things J-E-T-S, Jets, Jets, Jets. And Rich... You're on with Clark and Ron, and we've been talking here on the Talk of Him Network about the NFL's national anthem policy, but what we haven't been talking about is the Jets' response to it, and that's what I'd like to hear from you. I mean, the team's CEO and chairman, Christopher Johnson, as you know, was broken with league policy and said he would support players who might kneel and he would pay whatever league fines there are. How has that gone over with the Jets' players themselves? Well, as you would expect, guys, uh, very well. <laughs> They're uh, just spent uh, this afternoon in the Jets locker room talking to players about it, and uh, they applaud Christopher Johnson for for backing them in that fashion. And uh, it's kind of interesting because he actually voted for the policy uh, last mm-hmm. week at the owners' meetings, but right. I think. Uh, and then he came out and really broke with the policy when he made those comments. But I think the players, uh, they, they met last Thursday with Christopher here at the facility. He called a team meeting. He explained to him his position on it. And, uh, they, you know, they loved what he said. You know, he's, he's backing them, and he understands, you know, what they're trying to say with these protests. Why do you think he broke with the policy after saying voting for it one day and then saying something else the next? Why do I think he broke? Yeah, it's that a that's a really good question. I think you know from the people I talked to who know Johnson, they said uh, you know the, the discussion among the owners got to a place where he was comfortable with the policy, and I think the key part, the component that he was comfortable with, was the part how it gives the individual teams. Some uh, some wiggle room and some ability flexibility to uh, enact their own policy. Like if they wanted to find an individual player, they have the right to do that. So I think once that component was part of the policy, I think he felt okay voting for it, even though he came out right after the vote and said, "You know, we're doing it our own way. 
Uh, I don't really agree with this policy. So I could see where an outsider will look at it and say he's playing both sides. And he might be, you know, to be quite honest. But the people under his employ, you know, the players, are applaud his approach. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that, Rich, because that was the first thing I thought. It did sort of look a little bit like he was, you know, trying to play both sides of the the street. And I was wondering, do you think he was bothered at all by the league announcing that this was a unanimous vote, when it clearly wasn't a unanimous vote, at least two abstentions, and clearly there were guys like him who had some uh, clear issues with the with the policy. Was he bothered by, because uh, I know there were several owners who were bothered by, don't announce a unanimous vote if it wasn't really truly a unanimous vote, or even a vote at all, somebody. Yeah, it really wasn't a formal vote. It was more, as we came to learn afterwards, it was more of an informal vote. And I think uh, we haven't had a chance to talk to him since since then. He put out a statement right afterwards. He spoke to one reporter, Bob Glauber, at the owners' meetings. I haven't had a chance to talk to Christopher. He could have abstained as well as Jed York did in San Francisco, and so he decided not to do that either. And, you know, I asked one of the players today, I said, look, you know, he voted for it, but yet he's telling you he's on your side. So how do you square that? And his, his, the players say all we can go by is what he's telling us to our faces, and he's telling us he's with us. Mm-hmm. And do you think he talked with Woody at all about this before, who's a big Trump guy, as you know, uh, or, or do you think he just, uh, did this without consultation and basically said to himself, I'm in charge and this is the way I'm going. You know, it is a fascinating question because, as you mentioned, you know, Woody works for Donald Trump. He was a big Trump supporter during the election. And as a result, he got the, uh, you know, the plum job, you, you know, ambassador to the United Kingdom. And Christopher has said that he does talk to Woody, um, you know, pretty often. He, he insists that it's not really about team stuff. Uh, so I'll take him at his word. I, I find it a little hard to believe that they don't talk football. Uh, you would think that that would come up from time to time, but, uh, you know, so the man says they, they don't get into team stuff, so I'll go with what he says. But it is, it is they're brothers. Uh, they're 12 years apart. I think Woody might be 70 and Christopher might be 58. Or very close, and yet they have two totally different feelings about this issue, which is really fascinating to me. We're getting to a little more of, of uh, upcoming football. Uh, there's been some uh, positive comments coming out about Teddy Bridgewater. Um, do you think that, uh, from what you've seen, that those are based on, on simply on Teddy's uh, performance and his recovery? Or do you think they're trying to set up the fans for don't get too anxious about seeing the rookie quarterback? Or where do you see that situation? I think most of it is stems from his health because I think up until a week or two before the OTA started, Todd Bowles was noncommittal on whether Teddy would even practice, uh, you know, coming off that devastating knee injury from a couple of years ago, which basically cost him two years. Uh, so I think we went into it last week thinking that he might not even practice and that he did practice and he looked good, you know, moving around and, uh, he's got a brace on, but he, you know, you couldn't tell really, he was moving around really well. And even watching practice today, uh, he looked fine. You know, he, there were no restrictions whatsoever. So 
I think the Jets are genuinely excited about Bridgewater, but you know this is a interesting quarterback competition because mm-hmm. Todd Bowles said today he said he thinks he has three quarterbacks that are good and that they could play with. So uh, you could you could take the optimistic viewpoint on that comment and say, hey, when's the last time the Jets quarter had a coach who said anything like that or you could take the the other point of view like the old john madden saying you have more than one quarterback you really don't have any so uh i guess it depends it depends which which way you want to fall on that but i know the team itself is excited about what they have well i was going to say that's what i was just going to say to Rachel. al davis always used to say the same thing they tell you they got three quarterbacks that means they got no quarterbacks yeah, I mean it's. I mean, obviously, we know who's going to be starting eventually. I mean, Sam Darnold is going to be the. Uh, you know, they didn't draft him third overall to sit a long time on the bench. He's going to be playing at some point. I think they don't have to rush him because they have Josh McCown, who played well last year, and they have uh, Bridgewater, who, you know, they think will play well this year. So you don't. Uh, but eventually, at some point, I think this season. They're going to just turn to Sam Darnold and say, "Okay, it's all yours now." Rich, let, let's just assume that that Bridgewater plays well. I mean, let's just assume he's healthy and he plays, you know, reasonably well in the preseason. It, does it come down to him or uh, McCown as the guy who's going to open the season, but both essentially keeping the job warm until Darnold's ready to play? Yeah, because Josh and Teddy are on one-year contracts, so you know, and I, you know, I don't think they'll be back. Either one of them will be back next year. So I mean, they're 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 placeholders. You know, they're hold the fourth guys, as as Parcells used to like to, to call them. And so it's a great question, Clark, because I, I don't know the answer to how this is going to play out. I mean, in a perfect world, they would love for Darnold to come into the preseason and just light it on fire. And, and be the opening day starter, but I don't think that's realistic. So, if I think they would like for Teddy, if Teddy can do that because he's younger, uh, if he could come in and, and, and have a you know a ridiculously good preseason, I think he could be the opening day starter. Uh, or they could, if they feel comfortable with Josh and Sam, they could say to you know and trade Teddy. I think that's a definite possibility mm-hmm. as well. If another team loses a quarterback. They might be able to get a you know a decent draft choice for Teddy if he has a real good preseason. I was just going to say quickly, what do you think went wrong with Hackenberg? Because it looked like he never got off the dime, like he never got even a chance. What? Yeah, I, I've used this, I've written this uh, little factoid a few times, but he's the first quarterback in 37 years who was drafted in the first or second round and did not play a single down in his first two seasons. Oh. Um, so, I mean, it is highly, highly unusual uh, that he just sat there and did nothing for two years. And, you know, I think two things. One, they overdrafted him. You know, they reached in the second round. He shouldn't have been a second-round draft pick based on what he did in college. And I think the Jets knew that he would be a project, but I think they didn't realize when you draft a quarterback in New York, it is a big story. Whether what no matter what you're if you're in the first or second round, it's a really big story, especially on the Jets 
because they haven't had a good quarterback in God knows how many decades. But <laughs> So I think so much was put on Christians uh, in terms of expectations. And really, all he was doing was taking a flyer, but he probably should have taken that flyer at the fourth round instead of the second round because it, it, it changed the expectation level, and Christian just wasn't up to it. He just didn't develop. His accuracy it was, was awful. I mean, he just really struggled in the preseason last year. And the coach just did not have any faith in him whatsoever. So it was really the perfect storm for him. A lot of things went wrong. And he's a good kid. I think he tries hard. He really wants to be good. It just was never going to happen here. Hey, Rich, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, and best of luck with the Jets, the Anthem, and those quarterbacks this season. Always appreciate the time. All right, guys. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks, Rich. That was Rich Zemini of ESPN.com. Up next, former quarterback Roman Gabriel. You'll listen to talk about This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts Studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, our next guest was one of the game's most accomplished quarterbacks of the 1960s and 70s and is one of the best quarterbacks not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. I'm talking, of course, a former Rams and Eagles star. Roman Gabriel led the Rams to the playoffs twice in the 60s, was a three-time All-Pro, four-time Pro Bowler, Twice led the league in touchdown passes, once led it in passing yards, was the 1969 league MVP and the 1973 Comeback Player of the Year, and who still holds the Rams' record for most career wins and is a member of the College Football Hall of Fame. But more important, Roman, I know Ron Borges uh, stepped away for a minute, but he was telling me you were number one in his heart when he was a kid. And the reason was apparently he wrote you a letter and you, you, you wrote him back and he said it was one of his most cherished items. He still has it today, and he wanted so badly to talk to you today about it because he said it's something he coveted as a kid and still does. Well, you let Ron know I appreciate that. And uh, Clark, you had such a great introduction here. We don't even need an interview. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> see, ya. see, ya. I'll fill the next 12 minutes. <laughs> hey, hey, Roman, aside from making Ron's childhood memories something special, which of those accomplishments that I mentioned in the intro is the most meaningful to you? Well, probably just growing up in Wilmington, North Carolina, and being a little frail, asthmatic, Filipino-Irish-American kid. And then one day hoping that, or dreaming that you'd probably be a professional baseball player or maybe basketball, and then football happened. And I, I would say just having that opportunity to represent my home state of North Carolina and coming from Wilmington, just to be able to say that I, I was able to play and realize my dream. So all those young people out there, dreams can come true if you work hard enough. Well, um, one dream that I hope comes true, and we do too, is a Hall of Fame bust or nomination so far that hasn't happened. Um, and there's a website, as you know, devoted to putting you in the hall. And, and we oh, here at the Talk of, Fame, Talk of Fame Network, we understand it. We get it. But, but we'd like to hear from you uh, wondering how much do you think about the hall and are you surprised, disappointment, disappointed? I don't know what else to say, but uh, are, are you just sort of surprised you're not in it? 
Well, you know, I never gave it a whole lot of thought, especially when it took uh, my good friend Kenny Stabler to die to get in. So I figured, and then uh, Vinny Sheehan, who is the, the one that's hit, Ram riding this thing for me, he came to visit me and said, look, uh, you were like the first guy at NC State to help build a new stadium and put NC State on the map. So I'm going to try to run a program to see if I can get you all the fame. I said, well, look, Vinny, if it happened, be great, but I'm not going to wait around for it to happen because I'm really pleased with my life, uh, Clark, because I'm in my uh, uh, Wilmington Hall of Fame, my hometown. I'm in the Wilmington's uh, Walk of Fame. I'm in my college, NC State University's Hall of Fame, and the North Carolina Hall of Fame. So, you know, some things are good and some, some things happen. And if it happens, it happens. And it would be great, but I don't, I don't think about it. Mm-hmm. Well, we do because we're voters, and that's sort of our job to think about it. And, and one thing that I will say I, I think plays in your favor, other than the fact that you were an outstanding quarterback, but really are the, the social implications. We've talked about this before with Tom Flores. He was the yeah. uh, first first Hispanic quarterback um, to start in the in the NFL at quarterback, and and he won a Super Bowl. Uh, he was an assistant coach who won a ring. He was a head coach that won a ring, and and you were the first quarterback of Filipino descent to start in the NFL. Um, and I think there are some some comparisons with Flores. Obviously, Flores, as I said, won some rings and you didn't, but. Don't you think that should count for something? I mean, this day and age, we're always talking about the first African-American, the first Hispanic uh, to do something. And you were the first quarterback of Filipino descent to start in the league, and I think that counts for something. Well, you know, the body of work at your time, because from what I've been told and from what I have researched, uh, when I retired, uh, my numbers were comparable to some of the gentlemen that are in the hall. So I think that probably means as much as anything is just your body of work. And like my good friend David Ray, you probably remember David was our kicker. Sure. At one time, I think 72 led the league in points scored. Somebody asked him about me, and he says, well, where would the Rams, would, where would they have been without it? Yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, speaking of those numbers, Roman, um, let's go back to a four-year run where you were 41 11 and 4 and I remember that well because as I mentioned to you before I came on I was a Baltimore Colts fan and there were some miserable afternoons I watched you dissecting their defense yet um, most of the attention as you know went to your defense in LA with a fearsome force of course putting two of its members Deacon and Merlin Olsen in the hall and uh, and, and there was more to that team. I mean, there was you, um, and you know, you were the league MVP in '69, and then later with the Wee Eagles, as I said, you were the league comeback player of the year. So I guess my question is, and I know you would ask me, I could probably answer this, but how is it that you've been forgotten? Because that 41-11 and four record over four years—that's astounding. That's that's terrific. That's Tom Brady stuff. Well, you know what I think, Clark is it. So far, I've been able to outlive a lot of the voters, I guess. <laughs> so you, you're very few that remembers those those great days. And, and you're right. We had the greatest defense. And my good friend, Merlin Nelson, God bless his soul, was my roommate. And what made our ball club is when George Allen came and the first scrimmage we had under Coach Allen, our first team offense had to go up against the defense. And we we were able to move the ball some, and I think that's what made our finally made our offensive line. Because if you could 
move the ball on first and fourth, and you can move more than anybody. As I mentioned to you um, several times, I was a Colts fan then, and I remember vividly you next to last game of the 67 season when you won the um, NFL Coastal, Coastal Division that year. You had an 11-1-2 record. Um, and the reason I remember is because you were playing the Packers, and I'm, I'm pretty sure it was out in the Coliseum because it was sunny there and it was cold where I was. But I think it was, <laughs> Roman, you, I, think it, I think it was a Saturday game. I, I think it was. And um, I was rooting for Green Bay to beat you guys because, uh, you know, if they won. Well, thank you, Clark. <laughs> yeah, well, if they won, obviously the Colts would win that division. But there was a block punt, and I think it was Tony Guillory who blocked the punt, uh, that figured heavily in the come-from-behind win. But that win was climaxed by your third TD passed in the last minute. That's right. Wh- and Claude Crab, you- our strong safety, recovered the ball about the four or five-yard line. Yep. yep. You're right, it was a Saturday game, and we had to win that game and then to play the next week against the undefeated Colts to be able to get the playoffs. Well, what do you remember most? He caught the touchdown pass in the left corner of the end zone. What do you remember most about that game, Roman? That being behind to the Packers was tough enough as it was, but and you're sitting there for and you're thinking to yourself, wonder if we could finally block the punt, and it worked out well because if I recall, uh, Donnie Anderson is a left-footed punter, right? Yep, that's correct. And that's where uh, Coach Allen had Tony Geary lined up all during practice the week before. And Tony got a good jump, and with the ball coming off, and if it had been a right-footed kicker, it might not have been blocked. But mm. that was just a great strategy, and, and for Kraft to get that ball and run it down to the four-yard line, and for Bernie to catch that ball in the left end zone, it just was great. Yeah, actually, as I remember whoever was broadcasting that game talking about, you know, there's a possibility of a block upon here, and I thought, don't, no, don't say that, don't say it. And you're right, it was perfectly <laughs> diagrammed, and sure enough, you guys ended up winning the game. But then, sorry to bring up a bad memory, but you lost to those same Packers in the playoffs, and, and that game wasn't really close, and it was 28-7. to But wondering, Roman, Well, you know, nowadays, Clark, you know, nowadays, that game would have been played in L.A., Exactly, and that's what I was going to ask you about. Yeah, yeah. Because I, 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 it was played in Milwaukee's County Stadium because the sites were rotated, and it wasn't done on best record. But I'm just wondering, had it not been played there, and it, I think it was sub-freezing temperatures, 30 degrees when you played there, and played in L.A., yeah. what do you think would have happened? Would it have been a different outcome? Well, the only thing I can say is that it's a lot easier to go from cold to hot than it is to go from hot to cold. Mm-hmm. You'd like to think if it had played in L.A., it might have been a different game, but that's history now. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, but oh, also, uh, the other two coaches, you, you asked me, uh, Ray Whitecker, our line coach, was the guy responsible for making our offensive line one of the best in the league under Coach Allen. And I learned more football in one year under Ted Marchabrota, our quarterback coach mm-hmm. and offensive coordinator, than I had learned the previous four years with the Rams. Yeah, I, I co- covered Ted years later when he was head coach of the Colts when I went to Baltimore and worked at the Sun. What a gentleman and what an offensive mind. Loved, loved being around Ted. And know when you think about Ted, look at the quarterbacks when he took them, had their best years. You remember when Testaverde went to the Colts when right. Ted was the coach? Testaverde had his best year. And then when the Colts went to Indianapolis and, and Ted was there and had Harbaugh, Harbaugh had his best year. And then those years in Buffalo with Jim Kelly, Jim Kelly had his best years. 
the to coach big quarterbacks who actually could coach anybody. And he did, do, he did a bad job with Billy Kimber down in Washington either. Yeah, he did do a good job with him. Um, hey, Roman, uh, one last thing I want to ask you about. You know, I've talked to you about your Hall of Fame aspirations, but there's another player on your team of the Rams who's not Eddie in there. Matter. You got it. All-decade safety. What are voters missing about him? The same thing they miss about a lot of guys who played in that era, that they don't know the guys. And see, what? as you would recall, too, in our day, you gave the ball when you did something good. You gave it to the official. See, right. a lot of these guys, if Eddie would have been a big show-off and jumped around, maybe people remembered him. If you were but talking you were to voters today, up. if you were talking to voters today, Roman, what would you tell them about Eddie Metter to get him in the Hall of Fame? I would say, look at the body of work. Uh, he had over twenty interceptions and still holds the record for the Rams, I believe, with most interceptions. And every play that Eddie made when he had a, like in Philly, when we played them on AstroTurf, the first time we played on AstroTurf, Eddie intercepts the pass and scores a touchdown, which is a turning point in that game. And most of the turnovers, when Eddie got an interception or a fumble, he also he more or less scored with them. Yeah, and, right. and for pound for pound, we called him Mighty Mouse. Because <laughs> pound for pound, he could hit like Mighty Mouse. Well, he was good, and, and, and Roman, so were you, and, and you were especially good today. Thanks for visiting with us, and best of luck with the Hall of Fame candidacy. And speaking for Rom, thanks for that letter, I think about 50 or 60 years ago. Thank you. Hey, Clark, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, and Roman. If you've got was... a couple of seconds, I'll tell you Johnny United's story real quick. Go ahead. A couple of seconds? Yes. Yeah, uh, myself and Jerky and Kilmer and uh, Maddie. Uh, we, and Joe Camp, we were invited to a, a deal with the honor in the uni in Baltimore. And somebody asked him a question. He says, well, John, what do you think about calling plays nowadays and quarterbacks not calling plays? He said, look, I was just, and he said, I'm not going to name names, but I was just at a banquet last week where I was sitting with a couple, two or three of the guys that are the great quarterbacks nowadays, and they are good. And they asked me, say, you know, John, you couldn't call plays nowadays. It's too tough. And John looks at what you touch said, well, I looked and square down and said, look, last time I counted, there were only 11 guys in the huddle. How tough could that be? <laughs> That's what I loved about John. It was a pretty simple game with I him. Agree. I loved watching him. Loved watching him. Yeah. Hey, Roman, thanks so much. Uh, Clark, thank you so much. That was former quarterback Roman Gabriel. Up next, it's the two-minute drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, we don't have the national anthem coming up, but Ron, I'd like you to stand for this announcement. Yep, it's the two-minute drill, and Ron, you're the only guy in the house today, so good luck, because you're going to need it. The USS Arizona has been closed down because it's damaged. So when do they close down the Browns? Never, because unlike the Arizona, they're on the rise. Or so says Hugh Jackson. Adrian Peterson said he considered playing for the St. Louis. Yes, St. Louis Rams. Excuse me, what? So would I. I consider playing for any Rams. But neither of us are going to be playing for the real Rams or the phony Rams. <laughs> Ram on. Bluefield Ram. 
<laughs> Des Bryant can't seem to make up his mind on the 49ers. First he says he wants to play for them, then he deletes the tweet. So what happened? Minimum salary, two-year contract offer arrived in his email. No, thank you. I'd take that. Sure you <laughs> would. Arrive in my, which should arrive in my email. Who gets a job first, Colin Kaepernick or Eric Reed, and where? I would say uh, Eric Reed. I don't know where. I don't know when. It's one of the great Doug Baldwin calls President Trump, quote, an idiot, unquote. What do you call Doug Baldwin? A <laughs> Richie Incognito told police he was involved with the NSA. In what capacity? Apparently not as an undercover agent. The Jets say Teddy Bridgewater's status is, quote, trending upward, unquote. What does that mean? The notion of Lucy Sam Donald starting on opening day makes it Le'Veon Bell has a new single out called Target. What's that about? It's about his if he continues his holdout. You going to buy it? And how soon? Right after, right after I get Colin Kaepernick's new single. Lonely boy. That's the end of our first hour, but stay where you are. Coming up is Giants head coach Pat Shermer, the best Jacksonville Jaguars now in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and Borges or Bogus. I'm calling Bogus. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to our number two of the Talk of Fame Network. I'm Clark. He's Ron and Rick. He's gone this week. Off to New York to vote on the NFL's 100th anniversary football team. Now, Ron, you weren't asked, and neither was I. So let's do our own polling here. If you had two quarterbacks to pick for the 100th anniversary team, who would they be? A little bit tough, but uh, not too tough. Johnny Unitas and John Elway, the greatest quarterback who ever lived and the greatest ever playing quarterback who ever lived. But it would be, wow. it'd be easy, though, for me to make a case for slinging Sammy Baugh uh, or the greatest winner, winner of all time, Otto Graham. Yeah, I think I'd have to go Unitas, but I'd probably have to go Tom Brady, too, or maybe Otto Graham. But to me, if it's pre-Super Bowl, it's easy. It's Unitas and Graham. If it's Super Bowl-era quarterbacks... It would be Brady in Montana. Okay, next up, Ron, two wide receivers. Who do you have? This one's uh, only tough because uh, I would like to have three. Uh, but I'm going to go with Don Hudson and Jerry Rice. Hudson uh, it was so far ahead of his time. You have to view him as an outlier. Um, and Jerry Rice was Jerry Rice. You know, to me, he and Lance are all of awesome. uh, I prefer Jerry. Uh, don't ask me why, but I Yeah, I, I'm with you here. I mean, this one's easy for me, and I think right along with you, Ron, you don't hear me say that very often, but uh, Jerry Rice and Lance Allworth. But, again, if we're going pre-Super Bowl, I'd have Don Hudson in there. Those, to me, are the, the top three. Uh, okay, now, your top two running backs. Uh, Jim Brown, and who cares? Because uh, I'm giving Jim <laughs> Brown the ball every play. <laughs> but if you make me pay, take another guy, <laughs> if I have to take another guy, I'll take Eric Dick. I thought would wow. I think would have broken every record there ever was if he stayed with the Rams. Yeah, I'd take Jim Brown, too, but I do care about my second running back. I'd either be Gale Sayers or Barry Sanders. Love Barry Sanders. Uh, Gale Sayers had a short career, but, man, I haven't seen anything like him since. Um, One last one, Ron. Who's your first defensive player off the board? 
Easy for me. Dick Butkus, you put him in the middle of your defense and everybody on the other side of the line of scrimmage is doing one thing, clock, the crap in their pants. Isn't that what real good defense is about? Making a guy crap his pants. Nobody better than Butkus is that. Kind of like Hank Bauer last week in our interview. <laughs> I think I'd have to go pass rusher, which means I'd have to go Reggie White or Deacon Jones. Anyway, I think we should email those suggestions to New York Ron, right? I think we should. We should yeah. get those guys on the straighten out. Yeah, man, maybe they'll get it listening to this program. Okay, I think we should email them. <laughs> Up next, it's Borges or Bogus. This is the Talk of Fame Network. is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Another item I just noticed, Ron. Um, did you see the Denver GM and friend of the show, Hall of Famer John Elway, failed to qualify the, for the U.S. Senior Open, which is held next month at the Broadmoor in Colorado? Right, I did. Well, no. I guess... You, you failed to qualify if you shoot a 10 over 80, and, and he did. Uh, but it was on an afternoon where only one golfer broke par, so I guess that's not too bad. You can't drive it a ton, and you can't break 80. You can't play in any open. You can't even play in the Baker's open. <laughs> well, there is a silver lining there. Uh, John Elway is the honorary chairman of the event. And even he admitted the pulling double duty, meaning uh, one as a golfer and two as the tournament's honorary chairman. That would have been tough. And, and Ron, I think it would have been tough. Well, of course, it was tougher. Uh, so he should sit down, put on, put on his jacket, and smile a lot. Good job. Yeah, well, yeah, it is a good job. <laughs> hey, Ron, a quick question here. Uh, do the Patriots ever ask you to be an honorary chairman of an event? They did, actually. They asked me to be the honorary chairman of my retirement party. Couldn't put it up. Okay, um, getting back to what we were talking about in our last segment, which is the 100th anniversary NFL team, um, who would be your head coach, Ron, and, and who would be your owner? I mean, I, I know they, they don't vote on either, but but tell me who you would have, uh, owner and head coach. Well, I'd take Paul Brown. He's really the guy who about everything coaches do uh, today. Uh, and for so long, he was so far ahead of his time. Um, that it wasn't even, he wasn't even close to the next guy, and that's for the owner. I mean, who else? Al Davis, the only owner I ever met who actually knew how to coach pro football. He also knew a lot of other things, like how to own a team without really putting up your own money, which is a skill I'd love to possess. Uh, and most importantly to me, he was an owner who was about football. He was not about marketing. He wasn't about selling jerseys. You know, he was about uh, you know what's best for the game and predicted many of the downside of what has come out of the salary cap. So it would be Al Davis for me. Stunning response, Ron. I never saw that coming. Uh, why <laughs> do, yeah. Well, why don't you just get Al Davis as your coach and owner? You could do that. Well, you know, we'd win a lot of games. <laughs> we'd win a lot of games, as he did. He was the coach of the year. And uh, not too many yeah. other uh, owners can, can claim that distinction. Well, I, I must ask you about your hometown hero, and that's, of course, Bill Belichick. Uh, where does he fit in here? Oh, he fits right in there with Paul Brown and Don Shula and, and, and uh, you know, probably behind the bargain of Shula, who uh, we should all recall did win the most games in history. Uh, and he did what Bill Belichick could not do, which was called beat it. 
And he also went 15-1 and one in another season. So, I mean, you know, Don Shula's a great coach. But Belichick is clearly after the style of that uh, era, sure. He has been on the short list of any of the greatest coaches of all time. And I mean, very short list. It wouldn't take long to get to his name. Yeah. Um, well, I'll ask you about a local favorite for a team I used to cover, and that's the San Francisco 49ers. Um, where does Eddie DeBartolo fit in? I mean, he had a ton of success with that run with the 49ers. Well, he did. He got four of us, especially if you like he just hit right on a genie. Took him a while to get there. Uh, but uh, he, you know, he's been credited with changing the way a lot of teams uh, operated or forcing them to change in terms of how they treated the players. And certainly uh, probably nobody treated players better than Eddie DeBartolo. Yeah, that's right. And just ask his players. I mean, I was around that team, and they just swore by him. And I came from San Diego where they weren't treated so well. And, and they, they loved Eddie. Um, but uh, something, of course, that both – Belichick and Eddie have in common is rings, uh, lots of rings. Uh, Belichick won five Super Bowls, and, and so did Eddie. Um, we use championships, Ron, as a measuring stick with quarterbacks and coaches here with the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Heck, it, I mean, it's a factor that I believe has held Roman Gabriel back, uh, our guest in the first hour. But there are plenty of people out there who believe that's unfair and that it's wrong. Where do you stand on that? Well, you know, I... I do think it's unfair in a lot of ways. Now, Parcells always used to say, coaches and quarterbacks are judged by their jewels. And that's how it is. You ain't got it, then, then you don't belong in the, in the discussion. Um, but I, I do think it's a little bit unfair. Uh, you know, some of Shula's career, for example, only one team went to the championship game. That was it. Mm-hmm. You know, right. one from each conference, and that was it. He was tied for the conference's best record one year and didn't get in on some sort of weird tiebreaker situation. Uh, and, you know, and then if you look at Bill Belichick and the Patriots, you know, they go to eight Super Bowl games. Uh, they're five and three, but they could be eight and zero. Oh. They also could be zero oh and eight. You know, they won one in overtime, three by a field goal, one by four points, and, and one by Pete Carroll losing his mind, uh, you know, <laughs> and later losing losing his teeth. You know, but reverse those, and you can see that everything is different. So would that you know, mean he's a terrible coach? Or good? You know, I, I just think too much emphasis is put on the final game of the season when. So many different things can happen to, to affect you one way or the other. Well, how about the emphasis on winning records, Ron? I mean, I think the winning percentages of Otto Graham and Tom Brady, frankly, are, are astounding, uh, close to 80%. And, and I firmly believe it says something about both, especially when Belichick has a losing record without Brady. So how much attention do you pay to that? Yeah, well, I agree with you there. I mean, that's a, uh, that's a much uh, better overall measure. Uh, generally, the guys you think of as the best players and coaches, Year and year uh, are winning and having the top in, in winning percentages. They consistently for a long period of time, which tells me a lot more than uh, you know than what you did in in, in one or two games. You know, uh, Trent Dilfer won a Super Bowl. Dan Marino didn't. We're going to play football tomorrow. Who do you want to play quarterback? Uh, you know, it's just, uh, you know Roman Gabriel never got to the championship game, and Brad Johnson won one. Who do you want to play quarterback? I want Roman Gabriel. So I, I, I think. Uh, Overall consistency, tremendous winning. Like, 75% of his games. Don't tell me that guy's not a Hall of Fame quarterback. 
whether he won one championship or, 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 or five. So I think it is, in fairness, a better measuring stick than, than the championship itself. That means it's time for the guy I want to play a quarterback for me, and that's Ron with this week's Borges of Bogus. And, Ronnie, what's on your mind this week, other, of course, than that Yale lacrosse victory? Someone said you're going to write about a player named Tardif from Montreal, and I thought, oh, wait, Mark Tardif? Uh, no, I guess not, right? Uh. <laughs> not exactly. Uh, a lot of things are bogus in this world, and certainly the NFL is no exception. But one guy who is an exception to the bogus title is Kansas City Chiefs guard Laurent Duvernay Tardif, graduated Tuesday from the McGill University Medical School in Montreal. Dude, that is definitely not bogus. In a world where the title student athlete has come to mean very little, at least in the NFL, Tardif is a massive exception. At 6'5, 321 pounds, he makes the biggest doctor ever to win a residency in the emergency room medicine, as he has. That guy tells you to take two with him, that would be bogus and also unwise. Now, Tardif went to McGill not to play football, but to focus on his studies. But after his freshman year, he began, uh, he became the best player in Canada. He became a six-round draft choice of the Chiefs in 2014 um, while headed to McGill's medical college. And school administrators decided to try to help him do both. Uh, so he took the summer and fall away to play football and the rest of the year go back to his studies. But Tardif himself admits he couldn't have done it without the help of Chiefs head coach and friend of the show, Andy Reid, who apparently doesn't believe a lively mind is a distraction for a football player. Uh, while most of his whistle-blowing compatriots would say no-go, uh, he was very encouraging, according to Tardif. And, and what it's led to is that this kid has started 38 of a possible 46 games in the last three years for the Chiefs at right while also earning a medical degree uh, at university in Canada. Uh, he's never asked Andy Reid for anything but a chance to be the very best he could be, and he's come through both as a player and a medical student. Now all he wants is one last thing. He wants the name on the back of his jersey to read, Gurney Tardif, M.D. It's not <laughs> bogus to believe he's earned it. <laughs> I like it. Hey, the only question i got, Ron, is what's a guy who's going to medical school doing playing a sport where CTE and concussions are prevalent? But it does make you wonder. You know? it, it does. Now, I'm wondering. Does Dr. Death qualify as a doctor, too? I guess not. <laughs> I guess not. Anyway, we've got to stop there and go to commercial. When we return, we're going to hear from Hall of Fame voter Sam Kavaris from Jacksonville on the best Jaguars not in the Hall. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Hey, uh, Ronnie, did you see that San Diego apparently is getting the sixth Alliance franchise for next spring and that Mike Martz is going to coach it? Uh, I, I did see that, and I assume you'll be applying for the PR job in Brooklyn. <laughs> All right, yeah. But uh, you know what? I think those are two smart decisions all around. I mean, I'm just wondering now if there's any chance I can do maybe a one-month takeout on the team out there. Any chance? What do you think, Youngers? <laughs> yeah. Stay right at Marcus' house, right up the street. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, leaving there was not a smart decision for me. But I'll tell you what is smart. Getting Hall of Fame voter and longtime friend Sam Kavaris on today to talk about the best Jacksonville Jaguars not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And, Sam, you're on with Clark and Ron, and, and thanks for joining us Um so my that, guess that, uh, that new league, by the way, would be pretty entertaining with March on the West Coast and Spurrier <laughs> here in Florida. I know. I mean, I know. Yeah. Well, especially especially if Spurrier can convince Tebow to come back and play for him. Oh, well, he's already lobbying. I know him. I know both of them. I mean, they've talked. It's unbelievable. 
Yeah, he's a, <laughs> he, he's a great recruiter, let's put it that way. Um, my yeah, my guess, true. Sam, is that you're going to nominate Tony Baselli, and, and listen, Ron and I are right there with you. You want to explain to our listeners why you believe he belongs? Baselli really brought a, a mentality to that position that was different than a lot of offensive linemen. You probably heard Madden talk about how offensive linemen were big kind of gentle guys and that's why they became offensive linemen because they were they were that personality type and then he says defensive linemen are you know big aggressive kind of guys and that's why they gravitated to that the Sally had that defensive lineman's mentality in an offensive lineman position and when you watch what he did as as a tackle you know he dominated people and punished them to the point where you know players have always told me that Somewhere late in the third quarter, one team decides they want to stop getting a hit, and the other team decides they want to stop hitting. Baselli never did that. He just punished guys until they just literally gave up. Of course, his beat down of Jason Taylor on national television, how he shut down Bruce Smith, you know, those, those kinds of things against the elite players of his era, I think, qualify for him for that. And I saw every play that, that Tony played during his career, and he never. He was never somebody who took a playoff. Rarely got beat. I think he has the second lowest sack uh, percentage per play, uh, maybe I, maybe in the history of the game, but certainly in his era, and uh, only behind Anthony Munoz. And when you look at that golden age of tackles, and we've talked about this many times, when you throw in Orlando Pace and Walter Jones and the and the other guys who are already in the hall. Baselli, according to those guys, when you talk to them, was the best of, of all of them. The only knock was the brevity of his career, which actually spanned 96 games. And when you start looking at it from a game's perspective, there's plenty of guys in the Hall of Fame who played fewer than 100, 100 games. So I think Baselli literally is the only Jaguar at this point, and that might be blasphemous for a lot of Jaguar fans, but I think he's the only only Jaguar that that, uh, that should be in the Hall and and. Certainly, as a finalist the last few years, he's gotten some consideration by the committee. Hey, Sam, is there any worry that he might be starting to get lost in the wash of offensive linemen? I mean, as you know, there were four this year who were top ten choices. I'm talking about offensive linemen, but none of whom made it to the final five. Plus, I mean, as you also know, there's a rush of what some people consider first ballot choices, although I think they consider everyone first ballot choices these days. But Tony Gonzalez, Ed Reed, Champ Bailey coming into the class of 2019. So any concern that he might be starting to lose some momentum and getting lost in there? I think there's a tremendous amount of concern on that, Clark. It's a, it's, it's, and I think it's an issue as, as the committee that we need to you know, not address publicly, nor maybe even address it in our meetings, but um, address it to ourselves that that there are guys on the list, and I think Baselli happens to be one of them that that deserve consideration, and that first ballot is a almost a, a fan slash media invention that somehow it qualifies you more and greatly sets you separate among equals among those in the Hall of Fame. It's um, uh, I think it's a I think it's a wrong attitude to have uh, when you look at when you look at the number of qualified guys and uh, you know one of our colleagues brought up one time if you if you make the final fifteen and you get considered for the Hall of Fame you have about an eighty eight percent chance of eventually getting in uh, I I do think Baselli is one of those guys that eventually will get in I don't know when 
Uh, I thought it was going to be last year, to tell you the truth, but um, there were some other considerations toward the end of the meeting, I think, that, that knocked him out of that thing. But when you look at the the four offensive linemen that were there last year, I think all of them eventually will be Hall of Famers. But my opinion would be that when you look at their their the kind of players that they were, that Baselli was the most dominant of those guys on the, of the four. Don't, don't get Ronnie started on first ballot choices, right, Ron? Oh my God! <laughs> time I hear it, I want to blow my brains out, which is easy to do because it's not a lot of shit land that day, you know. But it's just like, what are they talking about? You know, uh, I, I said to a couple yeah. of guys that in the Hall of Famers uh, a couple of times. I said uh, I was talking to Mike Haynes last week, and I said, Mike, have you ever been stopped in, in, by anybody who said uh, before you signed this football, Mike, can you tell me which ballot you were on? Because if you were like, <laughs> he laughs. It's not a thing, right. but because we have this 24-hour sports cable kind of coverage these days and, and fans are plugged in via the Internet, you know, everybody says, and I always kind of chuckle to myself being one of the privileged people to be on the committee when somebody who's not on the committee says, oh, he's a surefire Hall of Famer. And I want to call him up and go, dude, if you knew the process, you'd never say that again. You know, I have a little exercise that I do right before I walk into the meeting every year. Is I, I mark down the five guys that I think will be the finalists. And in the last five years, I've pretty much picked it before all of the discussion. And, you know, it's, it's fascinating to, to see who is and who isn't influenced by kind of what, uh, what's happening outside the room rather than the facts or what's happening inside the room. Right. Wait a minute. Yeah, no, I did, think did, more than did, did you have both Erlacher and Lewis and Owens and Moss going in this year? I had four of those five. This is one of the years that I missed because I had Baselli as a guy getting in. Yep. Right. And, um, right. and, and I, one of those receivers I didn't think would get in. We've we've talked about that before. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. Yeah, right. one of those receivers right. I didn't think would get in either. <laughs> uh, you know, you mentioned exactly. that you're the only uh, Jaguar um, Hall of Fame sort of ready. Uh, but one name that comes up a lot is Fred Taylor. You know, he's 17th all time in rushing, uh, and isn't that a running back's job to gain yards? And if only 16 guys did it better than him, it seems like you could make a a reasonable case for. Uh, for Fred Taylor. If it's the Hall of the Best Stats ever in the history of the league, then Fred Taylor deserves to be on the list. And he may be the last running back to ever gain 10,000 yards if you start looking at how the game is, is currently played and, and who else is out there. But, you know, uh, as dominant as I thought that Fred Taylor was in what they asked him to do, you know, there's a there's a special – I think there's a special place in the Hall of Fame for, for football players. And I think Fred is one of those guys that I would love to have on my team. Got a bad rap early on in his career as being fragile because he really wasn't when you look at that. And I feel the same way about Edger and James and, and a lot of guys who amass a lot of stats but, um, you know, aren't what I would consider, you know, they don't pass the eye test immediately like, oh, geez, that guy is one of the greatest running backs to ever play the game. He's clearly the greatest running back to ever put on a Jaguar uniform. But, you know, when, when I start thinking about Hall of Fame running backs, I mean, I do think about 
Earl Campbell and Gail Sayers and, and you know, di- different kinds of players who had very special talent, very special careers. And um, no question, Fred has a, a tremendous statistical resume. I'm not so sure that that's the only thing that qualifies you for the Hall of Fame. Right, right. Glad to, um, happy to hear that. We don't hear that enough. Yeah, you don't hear that enough. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, all we're going to do is talk about stats, and then let's just get Ernst and Young to, to add them up and put everybody in, you know. Well, that's, what, that's what's going on. Yards, you, know, that, you know, and you, 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 know, you run for more 10,000 yards, you throw for this many touchdowns, and since they changed the rules in 1978, and I know a lot of people who listen to this are going to say, oh, Sam's that guy who's saying getting off on my front porch. But, you know, the rules have d- d- dramatically changed how the passing game, you know, changed, changed the game. And you're not going to tell me that, uh, you know, hey, what, one of our colleagues once said, Chris Carter is the greatest boundary receiver to ever play in the NFL. Both of you were in the meeting when one of our colleagues oh, said yeah. that. Right, right. I leaned over to the guy next to me and I said, I know he knows who Raymond Berry is. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> and, and Raymond Berry played in a very different era. I mean, there could be an argument that it was a more difficult era. For yeah, wide I, receivers, so I, I sat. What? I sat next. I sat next to Nick Canapa at that same meeting, and we both yelled out, "What about Raymond Berry?" And I know you're from Baltimore, so you know about Raymond Berry. I mean, right. unbelievable, right, of course, Un- unbelievable. Right. So, oh, so I, you know, there are there are guys who amass certainly receivers these days who have amassed statistics that are just mind blowing stuff. Well, yeah. when you're throwing it fifty sometimes a game, and you know. I mean that that that's good, and, and you're not allowed to be touched, and all the other things that go on. That you know the numbers are going to be there. There's no there's no question about that. Hey Sam, we got to run, but thanks so much for the time, and, and good luck getting Tony Baselli next year. All right, I think the time's right. Well, hope so. I'll do my best. Thanks. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, thanks for joining Sam. us. That was Hall of Fame voter Sam Kavaris. Coming up next, it's Giants head coach Pat Shermer on what- Hi, this is George Stewart of the Los Angeles Chargers, and you are listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, as most of you know, Pat Shermer is more than one of the top offensive minds in today's NFL. He's also a new head coach of the New York Giants. But what you might not know is that he was the head coach in Cleveland and coordinated offenses at St. Louis, Philadelphia, and, of course, last season, the Minnesota Vikings, where even though losing his starting quarterback and starting running back in the opening month of the season, Pat put together a top-10 scoring offense for a club that reached the NFC title game. Now, of course, he's the Giants head coach, and he's also our next guest. Pat, thanks for joining us. That's my pleasure. <laughs> hey, Pat, you spent 12 years in assistant in the NFL before the Browns hired you as their head coach in 2011, but you last there only two seasons winning just nine games. What did you learn from that experience that will help you in your second go-round as head coach of the Giants? Well, there's certainly things you learn the first time you do something that you, you would do better the second time. And, you know, a lot of the things I learned were 
things that I need to do better in the you know first six weeks to two months with putting the staff together and developing the relationships early early in the process with the players and the and the people in the building. I, you know, I was kind of just grinding on football where you know this really is about people and you know getting everybody up and running and and doing things the right way right away and so you know there's a lot that you learn and I as I go along there's a list of things I'm never going to do again and certainly a, a lot of things that I'll do better since then. Well Pat uh, you both played and coached for George Perlis at Michigan State of course and you coached right. uh, under Nick Saban at Michigan State and you probably you may know Goose went to Michigan State, and it's all we ever hear about, so it drives us crazy. But, uh, we know. <laughs> I, just want, I knew. Much, yeah, I'll bet you did. Uh, just how much of an impact did those two coaches have on your coaching philosophy? Well, it's, it's really, uh, you know, I've been very blessed. You know, I, although I coach offense, you know, early in my career I've been, and really throughout my career I've been impressed by defensive coaches, you know, and certainly my Uncle Fritz was one, you know, he – you know, he was a guy that did taught me how you keep it simple and you're, you're very physical and, you know, you, you play hard, you know. And then when I played for, for George Perlis, you know, it, you know, there was one thing you had to be that was tough and gritty. And the rest of it was great. But if you didn't have the toughness and the grit, uh, you couldn't play in this sport. And it's, you know, it's a sport where it's, it's necessary, you know. And I think that's what I learned from George. And, he just had a great sense for working with young people and uh, getting the best out of out of people. And then certainly I was there with Nick Saban, and then I worked for Nick Saban. And you're talking about one of the all-time coaches of all time. And, you know, I think it's no mystery to me that he's had the great success that he's had. Uh, he understands how important it is to recruit. He knows the game backward and forward. And, he has a plan and a process, and he just repeats it year after year, and he gets gets the same results. And so, um, you know, those guys, and they were all defensive guys, you know, and then through the years, um, you know, although I kind of my track was on offense, you know, I've been around Jim Johnson, who took me under his wing in Philly, and then, you know, I worked for Spags, and then, and then most recently with Mike Zimmer. So all those defensive guys really impressed me on, you know, how important it is to play defense, how important it is to run the football, and uh, hopefully our team will resemble some of that. I'll tell you, a defensive coach who impressed me, Pat, was your uncle. I, I, I love covering Fritz when I was with the 49ers, covering the 49ers, seeing at the Rams, and then mm-hmm. later with the Packers. I love dealing with him. Uh, great coach, but I thought just a better human being. Terrific guy to deal with. Yeah, he was, you know, and, and again, he he had that part of it figured out. You know, he he knew what he wanted to teach. He taught it well. His players performed, and you know that's really how that's really how I got my start. Uh, you know, in those years when Mike Holmgren was the offensive coordinator at the Forty ers Fritz was at the Rams, and the Rams gave his offense his fits. And um, so then, when Mike had a chance. Uh, when he went to Green Bay, you know, he was originally going to hire Fritz as the defensive line coach, and then I think Greg Balash left, and he became the defensive coordinator. So, you know, they, they had a respect for one another, and then that's where I kind of came in touch with Andy Reid and, and then eventually working for Mike in, in Cleveland. Well, speaking of Andy, I mean, you, you've worked with some of the best offensive coaches in football, guys like Andy, Chip Kelly, Norv Turner. Mm-hmm. Who had the greatest influence on you? I don't think it's fair to say 
who had the greatest. I, I think they all had an influence on me in different ways. You know, Andy was so consistent, um, so studious, so, you know, by the book on things and what you taught the quarterback. And, you know, really that was a graduate school lesson in, in you know, what you tell the quarterback. And that's really where it starts on offense, you know. Um, you know, then with Chip, you know, I really enjoyed those three years. You know, at that stage of my career, you know, we, we challenged everything. The only bad answer was we've always done it this way. You know, that was the wrong answer. <laughs> and so, I mean, we peeled back the onion on everything. And, you know, we stumbled on some things that are now a part of pro football, the use of tempo strategically, um, you know, the no-huddle stuff, some of the training that, that happens in the background, Um you know, so although the answer was we've always done it this way and we found out that that's probably the best way to do it, we did we did learn some things that I think have helped us as, as you know, as we move through. Uh, you mentioned passing on the quarterback in the draft. Uh, how much of that was a, a vote of confidence uh, for Eli at, at 37, and how much gas do you believe he has left? Does that age mean anything? I know Brady tells me he's going to play till he's – 90, you know, so, I mean, does 37 mean what it used to mean? Well, I think that the draft and then with regard to Eli, those are independent, you know, of one another. I, you know, we feel like Eli's got years left. You know, I haven't had a chance to work with him now for, you know, a couple of months. I can tell, I mean, why he's, I mean, he's really a joy to work with. You talk about a guy that gets it. He's a true pro. Um, you know, you don't, you only have to, get a couple words out of your mouth and he's nodding his head he knows what you're talking about and you know it's he adds to the discussion you know he's you know a handful of things that we did in minnesota we want to do here he's he's helped us make them better you know our new york giants version will will be better than they were a year ago so no i i and he can still throw the ball and i've always marveled at how he's been able to stay healthy through his career I think that's that's unique, and I don't think that gets talked about as much as it should. We see quarterbacks every year getting banged up and missing time, and Eli just hasn't done that. And I think that's that's something to be that's something special. What do you think that is? What, what's the cause of that? Or, or, or uh, is it, is I don't know. I, you know, I think first, you know, I, I have to look at how he keeps himself fit. You know, in kind of the I guess it would be the dead period of the NFL season when the players aren't supposed to be around. I mean, he was in here every day. Now, you know, granted, we can't work with him, but he was in here in the facilities. He was working out. He was studying film. He was trying to kind of gather as much information about what the new system would be like on his own. And, you know, you can see, in fact, I was just down in the training room before I made the call here, and walking out of the building today at 5 o'clock was was Eli. So we had that short conversation about a handful of plays that happened today. And, you know, he had just finished watching all the tape like we as coaches did. And so, you know, he's a pro. He knows, he knows what quarterbacks are supposed to do. He does it consistently. And he's really a, he's a true joy to work with. Might have had something to do with genes too, Pat. I mean, his brother started a lot of games too before he had to sit down as well. No doubt, no doubt, and you know his father certainly had played many years. Yeah. So, um, you know it's it's in their DNA, but 
you know, and they've all done it done it well for a very long time, but you know, different in some ways. And um, you know, I think I think the Giants are very fortunate that Eli still are still our quarterback. We're speaking with Giants coach Pat Shermer on the Talk of Fame Network, and you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at, at @talkoffamenet. And Pat, uh, as the husband of a lifelong Giants fan, it's no secret to me that you guys or your team has had some problems blocking lately. Uh, the running game uh, was once a staple of your Super Bowl teams, but uh, the Giants haven't finished in the top ten in rushing since I think it's 2010, and the sacks are beginning to pile up on Eli. So uh, I look at the offseason. You sign Nate Solder away from the Patriots. You drafted guard Wilt Hernandez high in the second round. What Was fixing the offensive line your first priority when you took this job? I don't know about the first, but it was certainly on the front burner. I, I think, mm-hmm. you know, we, we went through a transformation like this a year ago in Minnesota, and it wasn't like we were modeling that. Um, but, you know, we signed two free agents, and we brought in Pat Elfline, play center, that, you know, by the end of it, he he played a year as a rookie and, and really was kind of a veteran performance. You know, he did a really nice job. And so, you know, we went out, and, as you mentioned, and got Nate. And then we signed Pat, and then uh, you know, then with the draft, we went and got Will. So there's three, three out of five pieces, you know. Plus, you know, we've got guys here that we still believe in. You know, I, guys that are on the roster from a year ago have a clean slate in my mind, and we're going to try to inspire them and make them as good as they can be. And what's been really nice for me is, you know, if you think about it, we kind of turned Eric's world upside down and moved him to right. And, you know, through the off season, we've been communicating with him. He fortunately for us and for him, he came in two weeks ago and um, he's doing a, He's doing a really good job. He looks good in practice. And, um, you know, as we were walking off the field today, which was interesting is over kind of by themselves. I was watching Nate Solder and Eric Flowers getting some extra work after practice together. And so, you know, I think, you can't do anything on offense if you can't block them. You, know, you can fool somebody some of the time, and you know you can make maybe a big play. But if you can't consistently block the fronts that you're facing, you know it's gonna it's gonna break up on you. So, you know we felt like we needed to spend special attention on I don't know about fixing the old line, but trying to help it become as good as it can be, and. You know, we like the way it's developing. Not to mention, we got some young players. Chad Wheeler's doing a nice job. You know, we've got, you know, Jalapio is, is or Pio. I don't know if it's Jalapio or Jalapio, but let's just call him Pio. He's doing a nice <laughs> job in there. You know, and then we we brought in John Jerry and Greco, and you know, our son, our center, the Canadian. He's doing a nice job. So, you know, we got a group of guys in there that are competing. They're doing good work, and. um you know, when it comes to September, we'll put the best five out there and let it rip. Hey, Pat, thanks so much for the time, and, and best of luck with the season. All right. Thanks, Pat. All right, guys. That was Giants coach Pat Shermer. Up next, it's a two-minute drill. You'll listen to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Okay, Ron, you were so good in the first hour, I'm going to ask you to get up for this again. That's the two-minute warning.
That's right. It's another two-minute drill with Ron, my only receiver. So, Ronnie, take a deep breath because here we go. Andrew Luck won't throw until June, and the Colts say they're not worried. Should they be? Not as long as season ticket sales remain near capacity. The Cowboys say they have a plan to keep Sean healthy. Sean Lee healthy. What is it? Simple. Bubble wrap. <laughs> Smart. Cassius Mars said there's nothing fun about the Patriots. What's he talking about? He's talking the truth. There is nothing fun about playing for the Patriots. Joyless the He's not the first to admit it, not the first to say it, and he won't be the Seth Curry, Bill Curry, or Chicken Curry? Seth Curry. Even when he's on fire, your taste buds are not. <laughs> Unlike Chicken Curry. The Obamas just got a Netflix deal. So when is it our turn? Hopefully by the end of the show. <laughs> Hopefully. Joe Flacco says he holds no grudge over the Ravens drafting Lamar Jackson. Which, why should we believe him? Because we have decided Joe Flacco defies all human nature and likes the idea of his replacement standing right behind him. The NFL wants the roof opened in Atlanta for the next Super Bowl. What are the chances? There have been in Atlanta in February, Clark. Bring your muck luck. <laughs> yeah, I will. Jarvis Landry says he's the best receiver in football. What do you say? I say Jarvis Landry has CTE or does not own a TV. Speaking of the Browns, which Jarvis Landry's part of, why is Johnny Manziel giving Baker Mayfield advice? Because he's the only man in Cleveland who might listen to it. At this stage of his career, Ron, what does Brandon Marshall have to offer Seattle? A little more drama. The Lions keep signing ex-Patriots. So when do they sign you, Ron? Ex post facto. <laughs> We'd like to thank Pat Shermer, Roman Gabriel, Sam Kavaris, and Rich Samini for joining us, Jay Raftis for producing us, and you for listening to us. If you'd like to hear this or any podcast, just go to our website, talkoffamenetwork.com, or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, look for us next week at this time and on this station. We'll be here. We hope you will be, too. Hi, this is Jerry Kramer, and you're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. Uh, this is Jesse Sapolu of the San Francisco 49ers, and you're listening to the Talk of Fame Network.